MetaView podcast. Hear these non-fungible conversations. They will yield you great knowledge and perspective. But beware, they might also make your brain go boom. So watch your step, because this rabbit hole goes deep. Good luck and have fun. Welcome, Rob Morris, to the MetaView podcast. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. Awesome. Uh, do you want to give a brief intro to yourself and your work for the people who don't know you? Yeah, of course. I'll try and keep it short. Uh, so I've been around in emerging tech since the 90s, uh, essentially building technology mostly, building startups. Uh, so I'm a serial founder. I've built a bunch of companies, both service and product companies. Uh, I've been an angel investor, invested in a bunch of uh, startups uh, and so on. So that's my background. Um, and I'm what you'd call a smart generalist. So I'm good at a lot of different things. These days, my focus is on fundamental and cooperative coordination and the meta crisis. Uh, so I'm spending a lot of time looking at uh, essentially like how do we we don't really know very well how to effectively coordinate by alignment. So I'm spending a lot of time looking at what effective coordination along those lines looks like as we move away from coordination by control, coordination by power and hierarchy towards coordination by cooperative alignment, you know, more pluralistic polycentric systems. I'm also looking at adjacent technologies uh, to that, things that can help, you know, essentially because technology is not agnostic, it has a huge impact on the environment that we live in and, and what's possible. So I'm looking at how we can use technology to help uh, move towards the kinds of outcomes that we'd like more of, like more positive sum coordination, more reciprocity, people getting their needs met more, and the ability to reach coordination outcomes on a bunch of the, the many problems that are facing uh, humanity today. So that's like a, I guess that's an overview. Uh, and I'm happy to go down any number of rabbit holes uh, related to that or anything else. Yeah, let's touch upon the the alignment based coordination or the, like traditional it was well traditional i guess in the past uh, 100 or 200 years since the rise of corporations maybe before yeah there was uh, different kind of uh, coordination mechanisms but uh, yeah like we have we, we got used to hierarchical coordination and now we're getting into this uh, era of more like alignment based uh, so you want to talk more about that yeah i mean so at a very high level, I think that the way that humans get things done uh, reflects what's advantageous in the environment that we find ourselves. And it also, uh, in a broad sense, reflects a, a, a gradual evolution of the perspectives that we collectively hold and how we approach things. And so if you think about things like uh, integral theory, for example, uh, then you can you can apply the idea of something like integral theory, not just to individuals, but also to organizations. So you could say we have like old fashioned organizations that are maybe very uh, hierarchical um, and dogmatic where there's no real movement of people uh, uh, in terms of like moving around in the structure, uh, what their roles are. Uh, but there's also, you know, no real change of the mission of the organization. And then you have, uh, for example, tech startups that are more meritocratic where if somebody's like, providing 
value, they can uh, they can change their role. But again, the organization is still quite hierarchical, quite rigid, and moving up to what you know we describe, I guess, as teal or evolutionary organization structures, which essentially are like everyone can do anything, but how do you agree on what to do, which is more in the terrain of DAOs. And so I'd say like something, you know, coinciding with approximately the rise of the nation state has been also the, the, the era of monopoly, uh, which is where large hierarchical monolithic institutions that have a great economy of scale. So by being large and um, they, get, they get scale benefits by being large and centralized, have been the most advantageous strategy. And so we've seen essentially like that kind of strategy win. So the structures we have like corporations and nation states are reflective of that. So there's, that's changing at the moment in my view. And that's driven by how hyper-connected human coordination and communication is now. So what's happening, right, is that, so one of the downsides of these big uh, concentrated centralized institutions is that they're quite slow um, and unwieldy to react. Essentially, that means that increasingly the decisions they're making are out of date, disadvantageous, and so on. And that's eroding the benefit they get from the economy of scale. Uh, so this is starting to create the opportunity for other ways to be advant- advantageous. That's like the them- thematically what's driving it. It's the, the hyper-connectedness of human communication and coordination which brings us closer to the changing reality of the world uh, as things change instead of having it more abstracted. So broadly, I I think of that as like uh, coordination by control and power and hierarchy moves towards coordination by alignment, which is much more autonomous and granular, much more like a living organism or an emergent uh, network. And so we replace stability in structure and rigid structures with stability from system dynamics where the system adapts to things that affect it. Uh, And we replace coordination by control and power with coordination by alignment. And so I refer broadly the death of Machiavelli of that, that thesis that what's advantageous is shifting in this way. And if it's correct, then it predicts a lot of uh, interesting changes uh, to how we do things in the world. You want to dig a bit into that? I know there's a lot to cover in there. Yeah, so, so for example, uh, if that thesis is correct, then uh, walled garden software as a service businesses are going to be facing stiff headwinds. They're gonna, um, their business model is going to be eroded and essentially like platform style software businesses will be incrementally replaced by protocol, protocol style organizations that are open and interoperable. You know, so for example, the rise of uh, technologies like local first software and state synchronization, where everyone has their data um, and they can turn up and collaborate uh, and they're free to do that, where you are freely sharing data and processes and resources with other people because the more people who use the protocol, the more benefit there is. So you could loosely think of that as an advantage that comes from momentum and the network effect versus uh, advantage that comes from uh, protectionism and like aka monopoly a moat and economy of scale uh, so that's one prediction but of course like it affects everything how how we structure organizations how we make decisions around the, the environment that we live in uh, the way that we uh, structure commerce and everything in between 
essentially the, the simple lens is anything that introduces rigid hierarchical structure, anything that leans on that, whether it's uh, from an information pers perspective, like, for example, the idea of monogamy, I'm not calling this out specifically, but the idea of monogamy is a, a relationship that, that leans on structure, right? So you don't necessarily explore all of the aspects of a monogamous relationship and tune it to your specific needs. What you'll tend to do is you'll lean on this idea of monogamy and the structure that monogamy provides, which provides a bunch of benefits, but it can also mean that the structure isn't actually really suiting the people in it. Whereas alternatively, you could have relationships that are driven by essentially a dynamic negotiation by the changing needs of the people in them that can be much more uh, open. Uh, and so they're leaning, that, that example, that second kind of relationships leaning less on structure. Similarly, you know, if you have these sort of evolutionary organizations or teal organizations where everyone can turn up and do what they want, you still need a way of coordinating. You still need a way of deciding, you know, do I want to coordinate with these people? How do I get my needs met? How do we make agreements and stick to them? Really, all you're doing is you're shifting where that happens from a more abstract set of rules and structure towards uh, something that's closer to the actual reality. How do we treat each other, right, is, is an example of that. So you might say, if anyone can do everything, but we always include uh, the people who are going to be affected by something in the decision. And somebody who broke that social convention regularly, uh, there might be an escalation to say, hey, you're not really sharing our values. We're not, we're not sure that we see eye to eye. Maybe you should do something a little bit away from us or we, maybe we don't want to uh, participate with you anymore. Maybe we feel like this is not productive. And you know, rather than it being like an ejection of a person per se, I think more, more like a soft fork or a split where perhaps there's still a lot of things those two groups can agree on but there's some things they disagree on. And so that's expressed as essentially coordination tension, which when it gets high enough, essentially should like allow the groups to split so they can each do things in their own way, meet their needs in their own way uh, and continue in a way that works for them. I would argue that the biggest sources of conflict in human society today, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm kind of doing a bit of a shotgun here, but the biggest sources of conflict in human society today are where we say, here's a rule that affects 10 million people. You've all got to follow one rule. Of course, what happens next is factions emerge to fight over the rule with each faction wanting a rule that advantages them over other people. Or where we say, here, you're all locked into this uh, system that you need. It's giving you some benefit or there's some shared resources. Nobody wants to walk away from that because if they do, they lose the benefit of it. So they stay and fight over it and then you get competition. And likewise, when it comes to people's needs, how they coordinate, what the communication style is, a classic example being introvert or extrovert, people will fight, right? Because those are actual needs. We imagine that everyone's the same, but people are so different. So when an environment doesn't suit them, they'll try and shape the environment to work for them so they can get their needs met. And if that doesn't work, they'll try and fight people or they'll just become really unhappy and miserable. And so I think that there's a great amount of power in us being able to support a, a larger amount of differentiation and these like smaller, more customized groups that have more local autonomy that can then coordinate together with each other. But also, if that happens quickly, it reduces the opportunity for conflicts to emerge between people that comes from these entrenched fights that we have or zero sum games. You know, and so I, I think that 
it's it's also a lot more complex, which means that you know technology is essentially creating some of these problems by making things much more dynamic and connected. And it can also help us to solve some of those problems by helping us to deal with the complexity of a more uh, of a more textured, granular approach. So that's a bunch of different theories, kind of like uh, covering different aspects of it. And, and I'm, I guess I'm trying to give you a kind of gestalt sense of how I think they fit together and, and how all of these things are actually really connected. Makes sense. And then when it comes to like uh, people splitting into different teams and chasing different objectives how do how would you prevent things from like spiraling out into like the organization spreading truth in in like too many different directions and like yeah like lack of alignment towards a, a direction i guess i mean i suppose at a very high level you always have at least two decisions on how to solve coordination problems you know if you frame it in in the kind of the common terms of the meta crisis you have uh you essentially have coercive you know it's like edging you know essentially like coordination by control where somebody tells other people what to do which uh the, the bad case of which is you end up with dystopian control and at the other end you have cascade consensus failure which is where nobody can agree on anything and nothing can happen and you end up with chaos and both of those are bad and so you know we've had this question of is there a third a middle ground a third middle ground that's stable throughout human history that hasn't tended to be the case. So usually, you know, a system becomes too dystopian and, and bad for people and it becomes so bad that there's not any meaningful difference between dying or, or you know, other consequences and living in the system, at which point they lose the disincentive to rise up. And eventually, if a system becomes bad enough, people will take action no matter what the consequences. And so in that sense, you sort of get this natural oscillation uh, away from these kinds of systems that become too dystopian to chaos briefly. But in the chaos, problems start to emerge. People can't agree on things, they need stuff to happen. And so as the pain of those problems increases, it creates an increasing incentive for people to solve it. And usually what we lean for is somebody tells us what to do. Somebody takes charge, they figure it out. And it's actually a very effective strategy. I mean, we use it because it works. The problem is that over time, the people who have power get a minor advantage and that over time, people are slightly nepotistic, which means that humans in charge of things will gradually, you get the, you know, the Matthew effect, right? So the rich become richer, the poor become poorer, those with power get more, those without it get less. The divide gets bigger and we sort of end up with the same problem again. And so I think that might not sound like I'm answering your question, but I think it's actually very material to this problem because when we reach for a solution to how we get things done the kind of solution we reach for is everything about what's going to happen long term right like if we're reaching for hierarchical control-based solutions where somebody takes charge and tells other people what to do then it might work but we're going to be back on that track again now some people argue and i think there's merit in this that you can start there and then it's effective it's a good way to get started and then you can move towards more collective processes i think that that's a reasonable approach but of course the risk is that once people have the power they don't let go of it and you end up with something different so i think there's a lot of merit in also looking at and us getting better at effective ways of bootstrapping coordination that actually work 
but doesn't lean as much on hierarchical control and power. And the good news is I think that we're making a lot of progress in figuring that out at the moment. Uh, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and ignore the, the history of governance and coordination, which is literally humanity's entire history. We should look at the lessons of the past and learn from those and apply them. We just have to translate them to this new context. You know, and, and so like, because it's much easier for a small group of good people to take charge and get things done. And that is one of the only patterns that reliably works for humans. We have to be very careful not to go to cascade consensus failure or anti-patterns like design by committee where nothing useful can happen. Um, that's not the solution either. We have to find these middle grounds that essentially, I've said a lot of words, right? So I'm going to, I'm going to pause and then I'm, I'm going to take a slightly different tack here. So the lever here, I think, the really easy lever is, is this consent-based? Is it coercive? Does it rely on force, essentially, like the ability to exert power or leverage on other people to make them do something? Or does it allow, uh, essentially, autonomous choice around how we participate? For example, in the fundamental community, one of the express rules of the community is that everyone's invited to show up on their own terms in the way that works for them. So we don't, we try not to design the community in such a way that it demands particular forms of participation. We try to normalize and allow that different people will show up at different times in different ways. And it's essentially everyone's welcome to do that. And so by doing that, you create a, a sort of a safe place where people feel like comfortable and safe to stay there and feel like there's a essentially an express invitation like hey whatever your unique needs are uh, are valid and so you reduce the need for people to kind of make this trade-off to protect themselves and go i cook i can't join the community because i don't think i'm up for participating in this or this or that thing and allow them to actually just share the space together and turn up on, on their own terms what that then does is it means that you can have the, this more diverse group of really valuable people you might not otherwise be able to bring together, for example, right? Now, it has downsides. It means it's much harder to get certain things to happen. Uh, the way you solve that, I think, is you do that at a different layer. So, you know, like uh, this idea in an unconference that whoever shows up are the right people. Great, you know, so you do an initiative. Who shows up? Those are the people. You work with those people. And so I think it just looks a little bit different, but we can do this sort of like autonomous coordination. And there's a bunch of great techniques like liberating structures or sociocracy that are sort of struck, you know, like light structures that help you or, or tool sets that help you to reach for something that's effective in each situation. But I'll take a breath and let you, uh, let you ask some questions. I was reading this article recently that was about this uh, division between uh, the mission and the village. And I actually really like that, which is like... Uh, explains how a lot of communities have this tension between the people who are really action driven and like want to move on, push forward and the people who are just like here more laid back and like just want to be a part of the community. They don't like care about like pushing things forward, like the project side. And so there's like, yeah, this uh, inherent tension in all the community based projects and communities in general. And then just like, yeah, making this uh, distinction clearer and like making both groups. Okay. Like maybe maybe the whole project can be like either a mission or a village, but maybe you should just like uh, make the division clear. Okay, there's this core team which is like really driven and like they just want to push through the obstacles, and there's the community side which is like really laid back and they like more sort of like yeah, 
discuss things and take this like advisory position? It's essentially like you have the people who are being highly conscientious um, in a community and they want to get a bunch done. And then you have the people who are more concerned with aspects of like being or experience or, for example, compassion. And so the second group typically uh, can express a lot more empathy when they're in that mode, which is useful for different things. And so as with most dichotomies in human society, whether it's introverts versus extroverts or people who want to get things done versus, you know, human doings versus human beings, I guess we could say, you know, or, or any other kind of like uh, bipolar like uh, idea. I think it's a, an abstraction. My experience of humans is that we're actually incredibly complex, nuanced creatures and, and no two people are really truly the same. We kind of like imagine that we are, but if you dig into this, into, if you actually really dig into any, any person, you'll find a heap of differences, a heap of unique needs, and this like, you know, really very varied spectrum of needs. So each of us is sort of like a constellation of different needs that change over time. And so the communities and the, the cultures that can create, can create space around that participants, unique set of needs, uh, and can allow that to be different than other communities, I think is an underexplored design space and idea in, in human society as it is, because we have such concrete ideas around oh, well, it's the left or right of politics or the introverts versus the extroverts. We have to choose one of these two options. It's far more complex than that. I think that as we start to understand that better, we'll start to do a better job of meeting more people's needs. And as we start to develop a better vocabulary and comprehension of those nuances, and that's going to also be better at meeting people's needs. And that's really fucking important. Because I would argue it's almost one of the most important things that we can do to solve the meta-crisis. Humans, I argue, are collective by default, provided their needs are met. A human who's worried about their needs being met will first, and I should add entirely reasonably, act to put the, you know, like in the plane, they say like the, the masks drop down, put it on yourself first. That's what we all do. And that's what we all must do. I mean... If your very survival is threatened, how can you possibly focus on helping somebody else? And if that happens to be emotional psycho needs instead, well, they just feel the same, right? So we can't really expect just because it looks maybe unnecessary or abstract or it's not our needs, we can't expect people not to act to meet those needs. So when people's needs are met, they're going to tend to be collective. Because I say a bunch of abstract stuff, I like to use specific examples to paint the picture as well. Uh, so a really simple example that I use for this one is, let's say we take somebody who's living on the poverty line somewhere, like in America, for example, with children, maybe living paycheck to paycheck. If you went to that person and said, here, I'm going to give you uh, $1,000, which is maybe a week or two of your living costs, make a huge difference to you. I'll give you $1,000 or I can give a hundred people just like you, a thousand dollars, which one would you choose? Then I would argue that, and you know, think, think before I answer this, if you're listening, what you think you would choose if you were in that situation. I would argue that most people would choose the money for themselves, but that most people would want to choose the money for everyone else. Right? So that's an illustration of essentially this effect. So the better we're able to meet people's needs, a lot of its attachment needs, like uh, being seen as I am, having my emotional needs met, and, and other needs, 
then the more people are going to be able to act collectively. And they largely, most people want to do that by default. Even the people that we like to hold up as exceptions to that, like sociopaths or narcissists or Machiavellian people, for example, they are not exceptions to that. They're just different in specific ways that cause them to behave uh, in ways that we sometimes need to be careful of. And also, for the record, is sometimes like a huge asset. If you're in a situation where you need to make some hard decisions that affect a bunch of people efficiently, a sociopath or a psychopath is going to be able to do that much more effectively than someone with a lot of empathy who might struggle with the decision or with their feelings about the decision. But inversely, you might not want to put a sociopath or a psychopath in charge of everyone's well-being, right? So everyone has their role to play in society, even people like that, not advocating for enabling dangerous people either. I'm just, I guess, really making a point that like, there's, there's room for all of these different things if we do it right. Right. Yeah, it's just a matter of finding this balance and approach that works. Yeah, I think like the kind of what the what Anastasia touched upon in the previous workshop of like, like what you said, just like meeting people's needs and finding out what their needs are. But uh, yeah, like my main concern with like uh, with this idea of having division is just like, yeah, we don't default back to this like uh, design by committee or like people who are action driven being uh, held back by having to uh, yeah, discuss everything with then people who don't uh, take action, which can be demotivating. Like you want to push forward and then there are people who want to infinitely discuss something, but those same people also don't want to actually <laughs> do the work. I know a lot of those uh, have this problem. Yeah. And look, I, for what it's worth, I think this is more a symptom of too much hierarchical structure rather than not enough of it. Essentially, if, you, if people have local autonomy, like genuinely, to be able to show up and do things the way they want to, then they'll do that. And they will essentially find the other people who want to work in a way that, that is compatible with them. Uh, and they'll kind of form groups together and, and they'll get things done in their own way. If we facilitate that, and allow that to happen and, and don't stand in its way. That just happens naturally in human groups. And if we also then have a structure that doesn't attempt to uh, make it a war between the different groups, doesn't try to make it, you know, left versus right or men versus women or introverts versus extroverts or any of these sort of uh, uh, bipolar traps, multipolar traps, like then if what's done instead is we, we allow space, then, what happens is the group, groups as a whole can benefit from the, the unique things that each of those different approaches bring. And it's actually better, but it takes a little bit of doing to get to, to get an environment where that can happen productively. And it does require dynamic renegotiation. You know, you can't just plan a structure on top and go, here's the process, everyone has to follow it and we're done. That's not how that kind of thing works. And I think that's one of the big mistakes that a lot of DAOs make is they either have no structure, which doesn't work, or they have uh, essentially structural enforcement of things like design by committee in the idea that that's the antidote to hierarchy, which doesn't work. Or they're using essentially the same old set of tools, hierarchical power and so on, dressed up as a DAO, which produces the same old results, which doesn't really work, right? And so what we want to do is not the things that don't work, but explore the space of how we lean into the unique advantages of essentially uh, high autonomy approaches to coordination, which requires supporting st structure, 
right? But not rigid structures, uh, dynamic adaptive structures that essentially allow this sort of dynamic reforming of groups and coordination. And so, again, I'll give you a really concrete example of a structure that works quite well in that sense, sociocracy. In a sociocracy and in, in essentially teal uh, evolutionary structures in general, one of the things that works really well is that you use a consent-based rule. Everyone's free to do anything unless it's vetoed. So you change the impetus to action to if someone wants to get something done, they just do it. Right? rather than having to go out and get permission from everyone. But also everyone knows that if they object to that in some way, that they can say, hey, I don't think you should do that. At which point, if the group's set up well and it's built on mutual respect, they'll respect that and they'll say, okay, let's work together and figure out how to do this in a way that everyone's happy with. Now, some people who are very used to hierarchical uh, structures might be listening to that and be like, oh man, I would hate that so much. But... I would say that it's like more a, a challenge with imagination if you haven't done it than uh, a challenge with those actual structures if you do do them. There's like a set, essentially an uncomfortable shift as you learn how to do things in a new way. But when you actually learn the skills and do them, it's, it's wonderful because everyone actually gets more of their needs met. The people who want to get a bunch of stuff done can get a bunch of stuff done. The people who want to focus on things like who are we? What's our culture? Uh, you know, uh, how do we make sure everyone's needs are getting met? They can do that. And it turns out the people who want to get a lot of stuff done also want people to have their back on getting their needs met. And there's a symbiotic relationship between those two if it's allowed to form. And so I think that we're just not very good at that yet structurally, but there's a lot of room for us to become better. Uh, I'm not suggesting I have the answers. What I'm suggesting is that it's all eminently possible I've done enough of it to see that myself. We just need to you know, spend time exploring these uh, ideas, trying things out, finding what works or not in different contexts and getting good at using it. Right. Yeah, you could even say that uh, in a way the this like consensus base or like uh, the design by committee is even more hierarchical than this because yeah, when I had Vinay Gupta on the podcast and he said like this sort of system where people have to vote on everything as a community is basically just... The same old, except the power shifts from the CEO to the community. So, like, it's still the command and control kind of system, except it's like the command and controls are coming from a different position, and that it's better to just have it decentralized. I mean, it's 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 rigid, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like not a good, <laughs> not very motivating environment to work in, and that's kind of why I see a lot of DAOs are transitioning to this sort of a pods uh, system where, like. Uh, delegate power to different teams and then these teams are able to run with their what they want to do what they want to work and just uh, do it without having to and it's a good it's a good idea because you have within within the pod you have local autonomy you know to figure out you have like a clear delineation of responsibility right like what are you responsible for but it's up to you to figure that out uh, and there's there's huge traditional success stories that work like that for example Bert's org the, uh, the nursing organization is like the de facto organization. It's a, one of the case studies from reinventing organizations. And that's literally like, it's uh, autonomous groups of nurses, each of which is responsible for all, you know, everything, administration, their patients, how they do things. Uh, and the head office, essentially, their job is just to train the nurses and make sure that they have their needs met rather than to tell them what to do. So they figure out how to give the best care to their patients and they do it in whatever way works for them as a group. And that's, that's the incumbent, 
you know, like they're huge. Uh, so it does, it, it's, it's proven at scale, this kind of stuff to work. Like I often think of, you know, like the precursor to the CIA was a, an organization called the OSS and they published an infamous, well, I don't know if it's infamous, but they published a, a field guide to sabotage, you know, before, I think it was before World War II. And there's a chapter on sabotaging civil organizations. I find it such a fascinating read to go in and read like literal intelligent sabotage techniques for organizations and go, go read it. You'll see. Yeah. It's like, Oh my God, people have been doing this maybe even accidentally in my DAO. <laughs> it's of advice. If you want to sabotage uh, any process, propose a committee of at least five people, right? Like this, this is uh, the kinds of, this is a sabotage technique <laughs> because it doesn't work very well. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It really highlights a lot of things that don't <laughs> work well. But, you know, like we can, I think we can have a lens on why, right? Like structural hierarchical power is any rigid power structure. It doesn't say it's a rigid power structure where one person tells everyone else what to do. It's just any rigid power structure. So if the structure is rigid, like if everyone is forced to design, do things in a particular way, and that set of rules is pushed on them from the outside, I would argue that is exactly that. It doesn't matter what form it takes. And it just shifts where the power is. So you could look at the Soviet Union and say, well, the power, the power shifted from certain kinds of people to people like the, uh, the waiters, right? Because the waiters would have the opportunity to meet a lot of people, which meant they had better connections, which meant they were able to broker and negotiate, you know, to find out, for example, when's the toilet paper coming in so we can kind of get some toilet paper or whatever. And so they had much better currency in that system. Whereas in, say, a capitalist system, it's going to be uh, you know, somebody like a, a businessman, right, who uh, can wield money. So all you're doing is just shifting the way in which people express power and control. Uh, you're not getting rid of it. The way you get rid of it is by finding ways to help people align so that they can win together instead of winning against other people. And to make that uh, more advantageous, which is the most important part, because people will do whatever's advantageous. So you can't just be like, hey, this is better. Everyone should do it. You have to actually tweak the system dynamics so that it becomes more advantageous. Otherwise, it's never going to win. Yeah, there's a lot to learn from these uh, decentralized organizations that before the DAO space and like from sociocracy. I think that a lot of DAOs are not uh, paying enough attention to what worked in the past. But it seems that yeah, like some of these patterns are getting recreated. Uh, I don't know if it's uh, intentionally or unintentionally. But I'm glad to see it happening. And uh, yeah, super useful stuff. Uh, the question that I had before, when you say like alignment, do you mean like uh, alignment between people or more so like alignment with, between people and uh, the idea of like what the organization is doing? I mean, both. I guess like a simple way of making the argument that I'm making is that control is essentially exertion of power or coercion right? It's the ability to make somebody do something. Alignment is where you essentially have polycentricity and pluralism, where people have a higher degree of self-sovereignty or autonomy. So each agent has, has a greater degree of autonomy to act and they can uh, choose to work together or not. And so uh, it means it's less coercive. The problem with alignment is it doesn't scale very well because actually like it's really hard to get for example, a million people to all agree on one thing, right? Like it's what it's 
bigger the number, the harder it is. And factions almost always emerge. In a sense, just on a side note, any modern corporation is made up of, you know, tens and hundreds of groups of people who all disagree with each other on, on things, right? It's like, it's, it's absolutely not uniform. So imagine instead of us trying to bundle all of these different groups of people, which is every human organization that exists on the planet, you know, I'd say like arguably Dunbar's number is about the threshold. Instead of this, what if we allowed those natural groups that would form to be the granular unit of coordination? Everyone in the group can tightly agree, who are we? What are we here to do? What are our values? How do we treat each other? What are the rules, right? And they all agree on that. They're not being forced to. They're there because they all agree that that set of rules is what they want to do. And people wouldn't be in just one of those. People would have many different versions of that for many different areas of their life, right? Like, this sounds crazy. This is already true. Every single person, like, let's say you live in an apartment, you go to a job, you live in a country, all right? So you've got, uh, you've got a coordination group for the strata or the, um, you know, the, the owner's corporation of your apartment. You've got a coordination group for the local government. You've got a coordination group or many for your work. You know, everyone's already in these. It's like crazy to imagine this is not already how humans are. Like each of us is already in many, many different groups with many, many different rules. What I'm proposing here is that I think that we construct uh, essentially like uh, uh, the way in which those groups form uh, can have a big impact on how well they meet people's needs. And that is that if we do that more around each group is people who are aligned around the same uh principles, goals, and approach. And so to give you a really big example of, of just how important this is, if I said, hey, uh, Path, I want you to design uh, the rules for a community, one set of rules, and then I'm going to give you some intake groups and uh, we'll hope that those rules work for them. Great. So you design a set of rules. You go, great, I've got a set of rules. I think this will be really good. I go, great. Okay. So the two groups I'm giving you, uh, one of them is a, a group of domestic abuse uh, trauma uh, survivors, and one of them is a group of people who want to experientially allow anything, you know, and, and, and that's what both of those groups need to meet their needs. Uh, what set of rules is going to work for those, the, the, you know, mixed together for that group? And, uh, I mean, you can have a crack if you like, but I would rather argue that it might be hard. It's probably different. <laughs> yeah, there's no one size fits all. We can call out why it's hard there, right? Is that like the first group is likely to want much more structure and safety and rules so they can have a higher degree of certainty because they've come from a situation where, where they're abused, right? And so that's tender for them. They want to be able to be safe, right? An environment that has no rules where anything could happen is not going to be a, an environment that meets their needs. Whereas the other group, the way they're meeting their needs is the sense of freedom of being able to travel light, of being able to be expressive. And, and they're willing to do that. If somebody wants to, I don't know, whatever, turn up and put their dick in a glass of wine in that group, everyone's cool with it. In the first group, that would totally not be okay at all, right? Like, and so it's very contextual. You know? And so you can't really make one set of rules for all humans that work, and except at a very, very, very broad level. And so I think when we start to break it down, we can better meet people's needs. But what we don't want to have happen is to get con cascade consensus failure. So the system that produces this, groups that coordinate by tight alignment, also needs to facilitate intergroup coordination. 
It can't just do the one thing, it has to do both, otherwise it won't work. Then the question becomes both, how do you structure this so you can create these environments that are actually nurturing for the people inside of them where they can get their unique needs met? And also, how do you allow them to coordinate with other groups based on what they agree, like where they agree, but allow them to not have to coordinate where they disagree and if we get that right, in theory, we're going to get to a point where we're getting much more efficient disagreement because we can't get rid of that. Like there's always going to be actual conflict, right? Where you actually like people are actually going to be like, it's one, it's either us or you, you or us, right? Like when only one of them can exist, only one of us can have what we want here is a genuine conflict. You can't resolve genuine conflict, but I would argue that most conflict is actually unnecessary. It's mostly structural. You know, it's the, there's 10 million people with one rule, everyone fights over the rule. Actually, if you just use a different structure, they don't have to fight over the rule, right? It's most, most conflict is just driven by that. Right. We kind of, uh, yes, stuck in this coordination uh, phase. It looks like I might have to change the track of the podcast from the meta view to frontiers of coordination after all. Uh, so uh, let's zoom out a bit to the the meta crisis or the coordination failure of uh, to solve it is it uh yes yeah, so you're like you're interested very much in both of these topics like coordination and meta crisis and i assume that uh, your interest in coordination is at least a bit driven by the want to yeah help address the meta crisis and uh yeah let's get into the meta crisis and yeah just for the people who haven't listened to the previous few podcasts, uh, how would you define the meta crisis even like in the like a one or two or two sentences? I mean, there, there are a bunch of definitions of the meta crisis. I think broadly it's defined as the, the, the crisis of crises. But, you know, I, the way I think about it is specifically, I think of the meta crisis as the, the set of factors that cause uh, these different crises to be uh, intractable. So the, the things that make it difficult for us to coordinate on solving problems as humans is the meta crisis. That's how I think about it. That makes sense. And uh, what uh, different crises would you say the meta crisis is composed of, if you can even think of it in that way? Yeah, I mean, like, we, we all pretty much, you know, know, know what they are, to be honest. Like, any of these deeply entrenched, you know, problems that just seem like... Uh, uh, impossibly riddled with conflict, whether it's uh, whether it's the environment and like environmental protection, whether it's political uh, conflict, whatever it is, right? Like there's we're surrounded by them. You know, I mean, what should we do with AI, right? Like pe people are struggling to make to agree on the big things and what we should do about them. So, you know, I think that these are all coordination failures. Uh, and this is what the meta crisis refers to. It's like all of these these uh, big problems that we face where we're failing to be able to coordinate on them. And so I think that it's a very important subject. I think it's also a beautiful opportunity. I think a lot of it's really easy to get trapped in doom and gloom with the meta crisis. Like it's called a crisis for starters. Actually, it's also an expression that says that the way that we've been doing things is not meeting our needs adequately. And, we, and all of this suffering is flowing from that for us collectively. So as suffering increases, whether it's for a person or for a society, it also increases your motivation. It increases essentially the incentive to do something to reduce the suffering. 
So here we are as a human species and our suffering is multiplying. Uh, and it's getting to the point now where a lot of people really are very interested in reducing that suffering. We all feel it. It sucks for everyone, which is great because that means that now we've all got this bigger incentive to work together to try and deal with some of these problems. So I think that there's a silver lining to this as well. I'm very interested in this because I have the luxury to be, I think is, is a good place to start. Like I've just spent the last 20 years building commercial product startups and making a bunch of money. I mean, I don't want to mischaracterize it. Like it's been a brutal 20 years. I have, I think I've worked, ran the numbers the other day, about a hundred thousand, about a hundred thousand days, something like that. Um, basically I've worked more than your average career already. And I'm only in my forties in terms of hours. What, what, it, what it works out, out to is I've averaged about 70 to 80 hours a week for 20 years. So I've, I've worked a lot and the average amount that I've been paid per hour is really honestly terribly bad. But overall, I eventually got to the point where I had a really valuable skill set and I became good at making money uh, and I have resources. And then I just found that I was really bored of that. I really just didn't care about it anymore. I wasn't interested in it. I'd been there, I'd done that. And I, I, I didn't really feel like particularly compelled to accumulate more resources. So I started asking myself the question, what's meaningful? Like, What's a meaningful way for me to live my life? What do I care about? And that led me down a rabbit hole of personal development where I needed to actually face a bunch of my own fears and my own demons. Because when it, it, we imagine that we, you know, we imagine before we actually come face to face with this, that it would be easy. But in fact, I think the reason why we don't do what we most care about is because it's terrifying. And there's a bunch of parts of us that we need to heal and, and grow through before we're ready to do it. Uh, so I, I went on that journey and then I started to ask myself questions like, what would I regret not doing in 10 years? And the answer that kept coming back for me was I could see all of these deeply entrenched problems and I could see I felt part of the answer and I had the resources to be able to focus on working on that without, it, without having to figure out how I was going to make money. I had almost 30 years of like highly refined skills that have become very good and people pay me a lot of money to use them that I could apply to that. And I had a set of perspectives that were somewhat unusual. And when I combined those three things together, I realized that there might not be that many other people out there with the right, the combination to do that. And, you know, maybe less than it felt because, you know, it's very easy to have that sort of bystander effect where you're like, somebody else will do something about this. And so I reached a point where I was like, no, I want to do something about this. I want to make a contribution. And so that got me started on this road. And the other, I think the other factor was core, what I call a core narrative. I think that everybody has a thing I describe as a core narrative. It comes from the first existential crisis that you didn't know how to survive in your life. The first, it could be a big, long one. It could be a short one. But there was something that was you know, you didn't know how to survive it. For me, it was that how I thought about the world was different. And like, I just, everyone disagreed with me. They didn't understand me. I just thought I was wrong. I thought I was stupid. I thought I was worthless because I had no connection with other people about these ideas that I expressed. 
as I became an adult and went out into the world and worked and so on, I, what, I, what I eventually discovered was that uh, the reason people disagreed with me was because I could see, in a lot of cases, was because I could see things that they couldn't. And that if I actually listened to those intuitions and ideas, that I was very effective. And so now I've had the benefit of doing that for 30 years or so. Uh, and I've been able to prove, I know, I know what I'm good at now. I don't have to guess. So I know when I have ideas in these areas that they're likely to be good. And over here, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. And so it turns out that what I, I thought I was ugly and worthless, it turns out that was actually because I had some talents. And so what I, my core narrative is that, but I want everyone to have that experience. I want everyone to be able to, because this is how it works. You know, whatever your first existential crisis is, when you overcome it, you want everyone to have that because that was so important for you. So I want everyone to be able to essentially unleash their own unique gift onto the world. I want them to get to do that. I'm endlessly motivated by that. And so then when I look at the meta crisis and I look at all these coordination failures, I'm like, guys, like the left and right of politics is a great example or all of the gender wars stuff. I'm like, we want both sides. Like we, we both need each other here. It's not like one side should win. This is like a false conflict. Like we don't want one side to win. Why is it that we've turned this into a fight when it shouldn't be? It's, it's, uh, let's see if we can do something to help with that. Anyway, uh, that's a little bit about how I got here, but I didn't even answer your question, man. <laughs> I just realized. That's fine. It's still useful. Yeah. A lot of different overlapping, uh, crises that kind of, yeah, hard to solve them on their own. Like all of the ecological crises are kind of interrelated or like the meaning crisis and the opioid crisis and it's all like intermeshed. It's all connected. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I just, most people, most of the time, do what the system they're in incentivizes. That's people. It has to be that way because, you know, if you think of humans as a species, right, how we got to where we are today is that people tend to be socially orientated. They tend to care more about what, like, the social consensus is than what's true. Most people, most of the time, are going to do what the system they're in incentivizes them to do. So the incentives of the system really matter. The structure of the system really matters because that has a huge impact on what we're going to get. It's almost deterministic. It's like a, a, a short feedback loop and a, and a slow feedback loop. So the good thing is that we can interact with that feedback loop. We can't change things directly, but we can, we can do things that will help to move that in a direction that we want it to go collectively. Uh, and technology is one of those levers. So if we can, for example, create technology that makes it easier for people to for, you know, form uh, adaptive organic groups where they're aligned and easier for people who disagree to have essentially like meaningful and productive conversations about that and see if they can work out their differences in a way that reduces rather than exaggerates conflict If we, can, if we can introduce more of these things, that will have a meaningful difference, right? And so looking at the, the, these structures and understanding how we can improve them is a really big part of how we solve the meta-crisis. In fact, I would argue that it is impossible to solve the meta-crisis without doing work of that nature. Wait, I was going to say so that your, your approach to addressing the meta-crisis is uh, more so like helping uh, individuals uh, step up and find their own ways to like fulfill their potential or like coordinate different groups and stuff like that rather than like going straight at the, the meta crisis in some way. So increasing everybody's capacity to like solve their own problems. 
for starters, who am I to tell other people how they should live their lives? Right. If I can, if I can provide useful tools and people want to use those and those are helpful, that's great. But I don't want to come in over the top and force anyone to do anything. Secondly, how would I know better than you what your needs are? Right. It's some, some crazy imperialism for me to kind of come in and declare that I know better than you what you need. I would like a society where more people have a voice about their own needs, where it's more normalized and validated for this broad array of different needs to be okay, and where that's not as much of a threat to people. And I think that's doable. So essentially, one of my core lenses here, which some people have argued might make me a little bit of an anarchist, but I don't think it's exactly the same thing. I think that it's really important to reduce the degree of coercion in systems, to increase the degree of autonomy that people have and the ability to self-determine. And I think that that's the way that we solve the meta-crisis because at its root, I think the meta-crisis is the conflict between people who are fighting uh, for structural reasons rather than because of inherent uh, tension. And so by allowing more people to get their needs met, that will allow more people to cooperate together and, and they only have to disagree on the things that actually matter instead of all of the things that they're forced to disagree on. And we can start to make a dent in this. And I think it's totally possible. I know it sounds huge and big and how do we even do that? But I'm, I'm convinced that we can meaningfully impact all of the parts of that. It will just get better on its own if we do that. We don't have to figure out exactly how. All we have to do is make the environment conducive to the result that we want and humans will figure it out for us. That's how it works. Right. Yeah, I think that makes complete sense. Like you, if you want to... Uh, stop corporations from polluting the environment. You don't just go like, okay, we're going to stop all corporations globally at the same time to stop polluting. No, like you empower lo local nodes to like push in their own communities. Okay, this, this factory is polluting our village and then you motivate these people. Okay, they're going to solve this problem in their own location using their own techniques or whatever. And aligning, yeah, alignment techniques are really important. It's one of the mistakes that people make about positive sum coordination. You can't design positive sum coordination system that's if it's not resilient to zero sum coordination like if, if a selfish actor can come in and attack the system and, and sabotage it then it's not going to work one of the tools that you have to stop that from happening is to make it more advantageous to coordinate and so for example bitcoin uh, is is an example of a technology that came along and did that relatively well so it's really important right like Uh, I remember this uh, spirited debate I had with uh, Bodhan, the Mithrium founder, and he's got a very good grasp of, uh, of game theory. And I was making this argument that um, people are collective if their needs are met. And he was making the argument that people are selfish, essentially, and that they are, um, I'm just paraphrasing him here, but people are selfish and, and they're going to do what's in their own interest. And what we realized debating this was we were essentially saying the same thing. It's kind of like saying the glass is half full or half empty. Actually, the glass is... There's a sequence. <laughs> yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's like just coming at it from opposite ends of the coin. Uh, any any uh, sustainable game theoretic system uh, that produces a positive sum game does it because it's resilient to being attacked um, as well. Uh, and so... That's what I'm going on about when I talk about the shifting advantage, because advantage tells you what's going to happen over the long term. When I talk about the death of Machiavelli, I'm observing that uh, 
positive sum coordination is becoming more advantageous because it's able to be more adaptive and deal with the changing situation faster and benefit from these uh, network effects. It's becoming more advantageous than, uh, than zero sum monopolistic coercive coordination. Um, but that wasn't true 50, 100 years ago, or maybe even 10, 20 years ago. That wasn't true then. Monopoly was more advantageous. The nation state came into existence because that was true. It's a consolidation of power. So, you know, this advantage over time will determine what the advantageous strategies are, will determine which kind of strategy wins, and will determine what happens. So it, it's a beautiful opportunity, if I'm even slightly right, that it's more advantageous for positive sum coordination, right? That's a, that's a beautiful opportunity. What we do with that opportunity is up to us as, a, as all of humanity. So well said. And we, we just crossed over an hour. I know we have to run as well in a few minutes. So and this is also a good note to end it on. Do you have anything else that you would like to add to that or like a conclusion in general? No, look, I've, I've said a lot of stuff today. Uh, as I told you before we started, I, I've been working like crazy for the last three to six months on all of this meta crisis stuff. Like I've really been burning the candle at five ends and I'm, I'm totally wrecked. And, uh, and today I'm, I'm particularly exhausted. So, uh, I hope that it's been interesting. I feel like I've, I've rambled off on a bunch of ta more, more tangents than I usually would. So I apologize if that was hard to listen to. At, and I hope that I said a bunch of things that were useful for people as well. Thank you for having me. Uh, I look forward to seeing you in Croatia for Metafest. That's going to be a whole bunch of fun. Yes. Yeah, it was, uh, this was a lot, of, a lot of fun as well. And uh, thank you for coming on. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to Metafest. And whoever wants to hear more from you should also join Metafest. Yes. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to do a whole bunch of coordination stuff out there. Oh, yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'll see you there. Thank you. See you.